One of my favorite little stories to share at weddings is from A Horse and His Boy, where this description near the end of the book is put about Erebus and Kor, this young woman and man. Erebus and Kor, were told, as they grew up together, had many quarrels and, I'm afraid, even fights. But they always made it up again. So much so that when they got older, they got married so as to go on doing it more and more conveniently. They had quarrels, they had fights, but they always made it up again. In fact, they wound up getting married so that they could have the quarrels and the fights and make it up again way more conveniently than they could when they were unmarried. That is a profoundly Christian ethic. It's meant to drive through and pulsate through the power grid of our lives, this ethic that says, well, of course we're going to alienate each other. Of course we're going to wound and injure each other. Of course we're going to be sideways with each other. Until we have been completely remade, that is going to be a fact of existence. The question is, how do you make it up again? How do you take two people who have gotten sideways with each other and, and get them right side up? How do you get two people who can't stand the sight of one another anymore because of ruptures in the relationship, because of fractures in the structure of their lives? How do you mend them? How do you entice them to want to be in the same place, to want the good of the other, to want to be reconnected? Jesus has another divinely absurd, as Walt Langren would say, solution for making it up again. Whether that's a husband with a wife or between parents and children, between roommates and teammates and cube mates. Wherever you happen to meet up with a person, there's a great likelihood that soon they're going to hate you or you them. How can you make it up again? And Jesus says, here's how. This divine absurdity called forgiveness. This this gorilla glue that takes shattered lives and puts them back together with a strong adhesive. This duct tape that you can put around the worst kind of Injury in a relationship and make it hold again. So, we're going to talk about that today. How can we make it up again? How can we practice this divine absurdity of forgiveness? And in a very Tim Keller-esque kind of ordering way, which I don't normally do, we'll look at why is it needed? What is it? Why should we give it? And how can we do it? If you listen to Tim Keller, I mean, how can you not recognize him in that? Why is it needed? What is it? Why should we give it? And how can we do it? Why is it needed? Why is forgiveness needed? Maybe the answer to that question is profoundly obvious to you. But if you listen to this story, this parable, the answer Jesus would give is because we're all in a ridiculous amount of debt. The debt of 
failed responsibility, the debt of failing our commitments to each other, the debts that come and accrue faster than calories on a Friday night at Steak and Shake. The people just say, oh, I would like to explore that with you, but not now. But we're all deeply in debt. Jesus tells a story because Peter asks a question. And Peter asks a question because Jesus has told another story about what do you do when somebody wrongs you? In the Christian community, when somebody has treated you in a way that has been injurious and has created a wound for you, what are you supposed to do? And he talks to them about going to them and presenting it to them. And, and if they don't listen, and you're hoping they will, and then you'll have a friend. But if they don't, then you're bringing others along. And there's this process. And so Peter, thinking of his savvy and his sense of having gotten what Jesus is up to, says, well, so how many times should we actually forgive somebody? When we're wearing white shoes and they step on them, should we forgive them a handful of times? Seven? That seems quite a bit. I I mean, most employers wouldn't let you have seven large infractions of the same sort and you let you keep your job. Seven times? Should we forgive seven times? And Jesus says, of course, in those famous words, I tell you, not not seven. Let's see. um, Let's try 77s. And, of course, Jesus is not a multiplication table teacher. He isn't interested in algebra so much, and I know some of you are not either. He's saying, if the math's too hard, what I mean to say is, don't bother counting. That's how often you're supposed to forget. That's what this number is about. So be at ease if numbers frighten you. Because I'm not actually talking about numbers. I'm actually talking about abandoning the vocation of being in the bookkeeping business. Unless you do that for a living in the real world. And then you can keep people's books. But in relational world, bookkeeping and accounting, it's out. And so he tells the following story. The kingdom of God is like a king. That makes sense. Who wanted to settle accounts. So he's checking out his ledgers. He's going through the accounts, outstanding debts, what liabilities are out there for the people owe to him, and he finds one that's particularly large. Somebody owes him 10 million bucks, we'll say. And so he calls the man in. He has a debt that is ridiculously unpayable. That's the point of this. He has a debt that's ridiculously unpayable. This is why we have to forgive, because we do too. There's a story that Carl Menninger, the famous psychiatrist, shares about a man in the 70s who stood on a street corner in Chicago. And as passers-by raced in a hurry to wherever it was they were going, surely spurred on by the violent cold, this man, who was probably less well than you would have wanted him to be or any of the people in his life would want him to be, would suddenly shout out and point, guilty! And then he would wait. And then again he would say it, guilty! And he would point. If I'm pointing at you, it's accidental. Please don't talk to me later. (laughs) I know you were looking at me when you said that. Don't tell me that. I wasn't looking at you. 
And people wondered, what, how did he know? How does he know? How does he know what I'm carrying around? How does he know what I've done? They were nervous. They would avert their eyes. They would get away. And it's not just because he was crazy, I don't think. Ernest Hemingway tells a story in one of his short stories about an ad in a newspaper that says Paco in El Liberal, I think. Paco, all is forgiven. Papa, meet me on Sunday at 4 at the train station. And the police had to be called in on Sunday at 4 because 800 Pacos showed up to meet this father who was promising forgiveness. And what does that say? It says that forgiveness has to be the electrical current of the Christian's life because we are people who long to be forgiven because we cannot escape the fact that we have made some trouble for ourselves, as Pierce Pettis would say. Deep trouble. And so much so that we're afraid to be known. We're afraid of pointing fingers. We're afraid of people calling us out. And we work really hard to make sure that the guilt doesn't overcome us. We are deeply in debt, and that is why forgiveness is required, and that's what this story is about. A man had a ridiculously unrepayable debt. And therefore, Jesus gives us a ridiculous solution to this ridiculous problem. Forgiveness. What is this forgiveness? We'll see. So he begins the settlement. A man owes him 10,000 talents is brought to him. Since he's not able to pay, the master orders that he and his wife and his children and all that he has be sold to repay the debt. In other words, you owe me, so now you must liquidate your life. Your life is lost because you're going to prison. Also, we're going to sell your family. And we're going to sell all your gifts, all your goods. We're going to liquidate your life so you can pay me back what you've squandered away. The servant fell on his knees before him, presumably terrified. Be patient with me, he begged. In other words, literally, be large-hearted toward me. And I'll pay back everything. A ridiculous promise. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. What is this forgiveness? It's a means for taking ridiculously unrepayable debts and ridiculously canceling them. That's what forgiveness is. It's canceling the debt that is owed you. And if it's debt cancellation, that means it's a gift. It's something that you have to give to someone. And it's a gift that the offended party always gives. It's the king who's owed all the money. It's the king who's in the right to demand that he be repaid. And it's the king who has to cancel the debt and let him go. And if it's debt cancellation and it's a gift... From the offended party, that means it's also expensive. 
And that's a, an important part to realize. Some of you are in finance, and some of you are really good with numbers, and some of you just have a brain. And so you can imagine that if someone owed you $10 million, and you said, oh, you can't pay me back? Ah, don't worry about it. That doesn't somehow totally make you whole. Where did the money go? Who's out the money? I don't think you have to be a banker to imagine that if you lend someone $10 million and they didn't pay you back, guess who lost $10 million? <clears throat> Children? You did! The person who lent the money, they lost! And so if you forgive, you lose. So, it's expensive. And it's always most expensive to the person who's doing the forgiving, which is what makes this the most ridiculous and absurd thing of all. Because it doesn't work with any other thing you do in any other part of your life, or at least so you imagine. It doesn't seem fair. Why should I pay? You can hear Republicans rumbling about this all the time. Why should I pay for other people's foolishness? Well, Christians say... I pay for other people's foolishness because Christ paid for other people's foolishness. And not just their foolishness, but their rebellions and their stupidities and their carelessness and their ugliness and their awfulnesses. Christ says, I'll pay, I'll pay. And the king in the story who cancels the debt says, I guess that means I pay for your running up this huge unrepayable tab. I'll pay, says the king. It is expensive. So, if you are in a situation where you're trying to forgive somebody, because most of you in here know, yeah, I probably ought to do that. Somebody's done something wrong to you. You have to forgive them. You're trying to forgive them. You hurt when you think about it. Or you're angry when you think about it. Or you feel bitter when you think about it. And you know what happens? You sometimes imagine, I just had a conversation with somebody the other day about this, who was saying, I think I'm really having a hard time forgiving because I feel such anger in my heart. I was like, what, what does that have to do with that? What does that have to do with forgiveness? You're forgiving, even though you have anger in your heart, that means you're forgiving. Because you're still trying to be kind to the person who's angered you. The person has wronged you and you're still trying to be good to them. You're not paying them back. You think that something expensive isn't going to cost? I didn't say it mean like that. But that's the idea. So if you are in the midst of a forgiveness process with somebody and it hurts like the dickens, that means you're doing it right. It means you're in the process. It's, you're in the ballpark. You're playing the game. You're in the mall. You're shopping. I just realized you just a sporting metaphor. So I went to a shopping metaphor. That's really important to realize because you can sometimes feel this sense of like, oh, I'm not forgiving because I have hard feelings about the person. Well, forgiveness means you might have hard feelings about the person and you're determined not to let those feelings determine everything about how you treat the person. We're not told how the king felt. We are told that somehow or another he was able to separate the wrongdoing from the wrongdoer. He was able to separate the indebtedness of his servant. And when he looked at him begging and he thought about his life, for a minute, he forgot about the debt, and he thought about his life. So he separated the two, and he was moved to pity. He pitied him, and that's why he canceled his debt. 
Because he started thinking about his life. If I, if I make him pay and I liquidate his life, he doesn't have life anymore. I could eat this and I could give him his life back. I could give him his life back. See, when someone's wronged you, you have the privilege and opportunity to do that, to give them their life back. It's going to hurt. Especially the worse it is. I mean, if the neighbor can, he's riding in your driveway and he scrapes your car every day. I mean, that's one thing. You can forgive that. I mean, okay. But as C.S. Lewis once said, forgiveness is a lovely idea, and that is until you have something to forgive. It's the big stuff that's really hard. Hurts. Feels unfair. But if you know it's expensive and you know you're the one who's paying, you've understood at least the what Jesus is telling us here. And so if that's what it is, it's debt cancellation, it's an expensive gift that the offended person pays on behalf of the offender, then why should we even bother with this? It doesn't sound so far like a very good deal. You know, I said, here's, what, here's how you should work every day. Every day, work as hard as you can, and then get a paycheck, and then just give it away to everybody, and then live on the streets. Nobody would do that. Well, why? Why would I do that? you got to give me some incentive. So why should we do it? Well, if you have been uh, on the planet, let's say recently, and you have listened to Oprah or Brene Brown or, um, or some guy on some website that blogs every day, you will have heard people give very compelling reasons for forgiveness. It's a very popular topic because people get hurt all the time. And almost to a T, you can predict, here's the rationale that people give. You need to forgive others because you don't want to be destroyed by unforgiveness. You see this kind of thing. Anne Lamott, great perceptive woman says unforgiveness is when you it's when you drink poison and you hope the other person dies does that does I say it too fast it's when you drink poison and you hope the other person will die it doesn't make any sense you see you're hoping something bad happens to them but you're the one who's stuck in the poisonous cancerous state you see So people, well-meaning people, right-thinking people, smart people will say, you need to forgive because you need to emancipate yourself from this prison of bitterness that's going to destroy you. And of course that's right. Of course that's right. And if you want to figure out who your religion is, I'll tell you this. Your Lord is more than likely someone you have not forgiven. They dictate more about your life than almost anybody, especially if it's a severe infraction. The unforgiven person in your life dictates so much about your life. They control you about more than anybody. Dallas Willard says so, if you don't believe me. And if you don't believe me, so you just think about how often it is that someone has wronged you. Someone's betrayed your trust. They've swindled you out of money. They've hurt you. They've injured your kid. They've They've neglected you in some way. (sighs) Think how easy it is, depending on your personality, to sit around and replay it. You've DVR'd the situation. 
you're going to put it on loop and you're just going to play it over and over and over again and you're going to get mad and you're going to rehearse the different ways that you hope that their brakes go out when they're going down the mountain, the different ways that you hope that they get some kind of really embarrassing skin affliction. You're going to sit there and you're going to rehearse all the things that they did wrong. And you know what's going to be happening as you spend all this time thinking about how they wronged you. They're so wrong. I can't believe they did this to me. You know how much they're thinking about you? Zero. They're thinking about you? Zero. But they're totally controlling you. That's one of the awfulnesses of unforgiveness. Is that you can be ate up, to be grammatically correct. You can be all ate up with bitterness to somebody so that that's all you think about and they might never think about you but they're controlling your lives and they don't even know it. So, that, you know, so don't do that. Well, so that's a big reason not to, you know, hold on to forgiveness, uh, unforgiveness. But that's not the reason that God gives here. And so I feel obliged to share with you because in our culture, that's the reason. The reason is to self-preservation. Bring joy back to your life. Uh, have a healthier constitution. You know, help your cells rejuvenate and stuff like that. Well, that's all good. I think all of that is right. But one of the things that Jesus wants us to do when he tells us this story is he wants to say, you want to know the main reason you should forgive? <clears throat> God. That's what he wants to say. He wants to say there's a whole lot of stuff in the world that Christians, anyways, ought to say, uh, let me let God photobomb the frame of this picture as I think about it. So I've been hurt. So the frame of this injury where someone did something to me that I keep replaying, can I just shift the focus a little bit to get God somewhere in the picture? Because then everything will change. Because if God's not in the picture, then there's no justice. Everything's accidental. I'm stuck with this. I can't do anything about it. They're awful. I can just hope that they die. I can only take some sort of perverse, energizing comfort from, from, being, from being enlivened by my hatred of them and the hope that their posterity will all stop existing. I bring God into the picture, and then all of a sudden I have a whole set of different questions and obligations and resources. And so in this story, the crazy thing is that this ridiculously unpayable debt was met with a ridiculous debt cancellation, and five minutes later, the man relieved is out smoking, breathing deep, and he sees his co-worker coming up, and he stamps out his cigarette, flicks it, he didn't even put it in the trash, and he sees the guy, and he's like, yeah, that guy owes me 25 bucks. I better strangle him. Since I just got released from 10 million, makes perfect sense. And so he strangles him and says, you pay me what you owe me, or I'll liquidate your life. And the guy says, well, have mercy on me. And the, the strangler should have thought, wait, 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 I just heard this somewhere. I know I heard this somewhere. Was that a YouTube clip? Did I see it on Twitter? Or did I just mouth it on my knees to some king? And, but he wasn't touched with pity. He was touched with justice. So he threw him in jail. And when the king hears about it, or rather, when his friends hear about it, they were outraged. You want to learn what's to be outraged about? Don't learn it from Twitter. They'll tell you to be outraged about everything. 
Don't watch TV. They'll tell you to be outraged about everything. Be outraged about letting mercy stall. About receiving bukus, lottery baskets full of grace from God and keeping it all to yourself and punishing everybody who wrongs you. Be outraged about that. And the king is outraged about it. And Jesus says, after the king throws him into jail, and says, oh, I see. You want to you go back to the bookkeeping way of doing this? Okay. We started that way, remember? We started with ledgers and accounts and pay what you owe, even if it's your own hide and your own life. But I moved us into a different realm and said, I'm throwing out the books. I'll just let you go. But if you want to have books open with your mates, well, then I can open up books. You can pay yourself. And Jesus says, that's how it'll be. That's how my Father in heaven will treat you. That's the judgment you'll get. He'll make you pay if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. So I just want you to say, I want Christians anyways in our world to think almost anything we do, we don't do it just because it's wise or because it's, it might be prudent. We're doing it because our Lord and Master Jesus Christ has said, do this. And then we start to ask the question, why might he want us to? Or what, might, what values might be to? Because he doesn't ever tell us to do anything that's stupid. There aren't any commandments that say, spend all your free time on Facebook. Like, <laughs> Jesus doesn't tell anybody to do that. Because that's stupid. But we all do it. I, said, I don't, but I do it on other things. Because I'm, you know, I'm better than you. I spend my time on other ridiculous things. But Jesus doesn't tell you to do anything ridiculous except to forgive ridiculously. And that's who, why we should do it. It's because he tells us to. And of course, as we do it, we'll find this joy. The joy of reconciliation. We'll find the liberation that comes when we all of a sudden get the gunk out of us. We get detoxified from this, this air of our own bitterness that we keep breathing in. We get to release it and expel it by doing good and releasing others from the debts they owe us. But we should do it because God says. We should do it because we've received. We should do it because that's the realm of grace. That's the currency of heaven. And that's what we're called to. We're forgiveness people. And then the question is, how can we do it? The last question, how can we do it? Walt Wanger also says uh, there's apparently a thing called a power tool. I've seen these. I've never operated one. A power tool, you know, like a drill or a something. And a power tool is something that plugs in and has another power source that makes the tool even more effective. And he says the power tool of forgiveness is the Holy Spirit. It's a great little analogy. That is awfully hard to forgive somebody the hard stuff if you aren't interacting with God about it. Honestly. And that's what's so great. Because the thing that we do when someone has really badly injured us, we, we enter into this process. And see, some of you don't realize it's a process, so you think, hey, I'm making some progress. I, I was kind to this person today who did me wrong. I think I'm there. I think I've forgiven them. 
And then that night, you know, you go to bed, and then a thought slips in. It's like a, like a water leak in the ceiling. It just starts to drip, and that's all you can think about. And then suddenly, it's 3 in the morning, and you're pacing the floor, and you're like, I hate them! You're thinking about what they did, and you thought you had made some progress. Well, that's just the nastiness of forgiveness. It doesn't mean you haven't forgiven them. It just means you're not done yet. And it means you're called to do a miraculous thing that you need God's help for. Because we all need a recalibration of heart. We need a recalibration of heart to say, oh, Lord, let me be able to somehow separate this wrongdoer from their wrongdoing so that I don't think of them as only the person who injured me. Because nobody is just that. And God has looked at us and not said, oh, you're the person who is a traitor and your your treachery is you. He says, I lop off the treachery. You're the image of God. I'm restoring you. But we have to get in God's presence to do this. We have to ask him to do through us what we can't do for ourselves. Because it's hard. The worse the infraction, the longer the process, the more difficult it can be to keep not paying somebody back even though you have ill feelings. But there is a power source called the Holy Spirit that helps people do things they could never, ever, ever do. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer would understand Jesus' command to pray for your enemies. Because when we pray, we come into the presence of God as desperate sinners who bring nothing to the equation, nothing to the transaction except our need. And we stand there and we say, we're people who need you to treat us better than our sins deserve. And when we bring our enemy there, often we're bringing them there because they can't bring themselves. Their eyes haven't been opened yet. They can't see it right. Maybe we've confronted them, which we sometimes need to do in forgiveness equations, but sometimes they don't, ain't going to hear us. So we bring them into God's presence and say, here's a poor sinner like me who needs grace like me. You get in God's presence and all of a sudden you say, I need, I need God to treat them the way he's treated me. I can't treat them in some kind of scorekeeping way. I don't want to get involved in that. Robert Ferrar Capen, whose name is easy for me to say, is a, was, was a, I guess one of the most famous antinomian theologians in America. And if you don't know what that means, good. And he says this, you know, there's only, the difference between heaven and hell is this, you know who populates heaven? Forgiven sinners. That's it. Well, angels and Christ and forgiven sinners. All the people in heaven are people who had ridiculously unpayable debts that Christ said, okay, I'll pay. I'll let you off. In fact, I'll clothe you with a righteousness that's not yours. That's what all the people in heaven are. And he said, you know what? You know, you know who populates hell? Uh, forgiven sinners. And your uh, five points of Calvinism are jumping up and your blood pressure is going up. No, wait, wait. No, 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 no. It's limited atonement. But... But you know, I think there's some truth to this in the sense that the difference between heaven and hell is like any person you meet and every person sitting here has a free offer of having everything about your life expunged and saying, die to your right and your misguided quest to earn God's favor. Die to your right to maintain your rights when it comes to other people 
and be resurrected in new life like your Savior who has paid fully for your sins and rescued you from the tyranny of the devil, you may have freedom before God. And the people in hell have the same offer, only they've done this. I don't want your forgiveness, God. You stick it. I'll stick to bookkeeping. I'll make my own way, my own rules. I won't listen to you. I won't listen to your pronouncements. None of it. Hell is full of that going on for eternity. Every man for himself. Grumbling and isolation and nobody being reconciled. But the Apostle Paul would say, God was in Christ not holding men's sins against them. I implore you, be reconciled to God. In other words, accept forgiveness. Are you beaten up by your own failure? Well, stop that. Believe in Christ. And trust yourself to him and say, your sins have been nailed to that cross for him. You don't bear them anymore. Believe in him and be guilty no more. Turn yourself over to him. Make it up.